0: Good afternoon, welcome uh, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, grateful that you uh, uh, are willing to sacrifice uh, time out in the sun on this beautiful day to come hear our speaker. Um, as you know, today is of course the uh, the final day of uh, jingzhe, awakening the insects. Uh, and we move uh, today to the new um, solar term of Qingming, clear and bright. Our speaker, so, so uh, thank you for uh, 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 taking time from enjoying the clearness and the brightness to, uh, to uh, join us today. Our speaker this afternoon is Ian Johnson. Uh, I was not sure how much of an introduction to give because I think he's probably well known to many of you uh, as writer, journalist, uh, and reviewer. Uh, of China's society, religion, and history. Uh, He has uh, spent time uh, uh, here as a Nieman Fellow, which is in fact how many of us got to know Ian uh, some years ago. I'll just say a few words about his background um, before uh, 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 handing things over to Ian. Um, uh, Among Ian's most important distinguishing characteristics is that he was born in Montreal and is a fellow Canadian. I feel <laughs> that every every Fairbanks Center talk should feature some Canadian content. Um, but his journalistic career began actually at the Florida Alligator in 1981. Um, he uh, became bureau chief for the Baltimore Sun in Beijing uh, in 1992. A very interesting time uh, to uh, begin uh, work as a journalist in China. Um, he has. Uh, um, his work appears, of course, in, in leading newspapers, also uh, National Geographic, uh, and recently quite often in the New York Review of Books, which is, and most recently, actually, in the Journal of Asian Studies, uh, the current issue. Uh, Ian's writing uh, has examined uh, uh, China's post-Mao society by weaving personal stories with broader narratives about China's state society dynamic in flux. Um, His recent New York Times article, for example, includes what a Buddhist monk taught Xi Jinping, uh, the role of Chinese, the role of religion in China's environmental protection movement and some work on uh, China's Muslims, uh, Hui Muslims. Um, The students today who are here today will probably be familiar with Ian's book on civil society and grassroots protest, Wild Grass, which is certainly a regular feature on my reading lists and the reading lists of many of of my colleagues. Uh, Less well known is work, probably less well known to this group will be some of his work on non-Chinese topics, including A Mosque in Munich, Nazis, the CIA, and the Rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in the West, uh, which grew out of an investigative piece for The Wall Street Journal uh, and uh, was part of your project while you were here as a a Nieman Fellow, I believe. Uh, In, uh, I'll mention just two of uh, Ian's numerous awards, first, Uh, In 2001, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize uh, for journalism for his stories from China. Um, uh, In addition, he most, quite recently in the last few months, uh, was awarded uh, this year's uh, Shorenstein Journalism Award. The citation noted both his understanding not only of China, but also of the culture and politics of Europe and the United States. As Orville Schell has written of Ian uh, his cross-cultural, this cross-cultural, cross-cultural grounding has imbued his work on China with a humanistic core that because it is always implicit rather than explicit is all the more persuasive. Uh, Ian's latest book, and the subject of today's discussion, delves into the very question of China's soul in The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao, which I believe is formally published today. So this is so this is in a sense the uh, the, uh, the the formal launching of the book. To quote Ian directly, the book is the culmination of a six-year project, following an underground Protestant church in Chengdu, pilgrims in Beijing, rural Taoist priests in Shanxi, and meditation groups in caves in the country's south. Ian's invoking of the Tang poet Du Mu, the Qingming, raises confusing emotions with rains shrouding the land, implies that this period in the year is a time for reflection on the past. One of our guiding mottos here at the Fairbanks Center is that reflecting on the past should also inform our understanding of the present and our ability to uh, better understand the future. And of course, in Boston, Qingming also means better weather. Please join me in welcoming Ian Johnson.
1: Okay. Well, it um, Anyway, I've been I wanted to first give uh, a few introductory remarks about the, the book and why I wrote it and what the overall themes are and then read from it because the, um, the book is basically written in a reportage style. So I'm following different characters uh, in China and I think it's probably more characteristics of of the book, to, um, if you get a bit of a flavor of it, rather than just speak more abstractly about the arguments. Um, I've been thinking actually of writing a book like this, um, on this topic, for almost uh, 35 years. So you see I move kind of slowly on my projects. Um, Not as slowly as some people perhaps, but um, anyway, I uh, started thinking about this the topic in general in 1984, when I first came to China. Um, that was, I went to China because I wanted to experience a very different part of the world, a different culture. But of course, like all people, we're influenced by our upbringing. And I had been raised in a, a fairly uh, religious background, um, and I was interested in what people believed. I didn't expect Chinese people to have the same beliefs. As me, but I thought, well, there must be some religion and faith in this country, and I was interested to go f- find it. Um, so I remember I was at Beijing University at Beida, and uh, with a few friends, we rode our bicycles down to Bayunguan, the White Cloud Temple, which is kind of like an hour bike ride, uh, which is probably still faster back then than taking the bus, and of course, there was no uh, subway, um, so we biked down to Guan, and it seemed, because of course I wanted to see something Chinese, right, and then Guan is the, the home of Taoism, I thought this is the, the place to see Chinese religion, it seemed like uh, the place was sort of dead, um, it seemed like one of these typical uh, showpiece religious sites that you found in communist countries that's to, to a relic to the past. Um, there was, it was beautiful, actually, it had not been badly damaged in the Cultural Revolution, but it was quiet. There was almost nothing going on there. There were very few priests. And after several other experiences like that, over the next while, I left in 1985 thinking, you know, that maybe the Cultural Revolution really had destroyed religious life, that there wasn't really very much uh, happening in the country. And, you know, I I think this was probably, or this feeling that religion isn't that important was probably shared by many people. At least on a popular level, you didn't see examples of contemporary Chinese, or any books on contemporary Chinese religion. Um, If you went to a bookstore, uh, you might find copies of the Tao Te Ching, or the Analects, or some Buddhist sutras, but they were usually filed under shelves like you know mysticism or philosophy or Eastern religions, which is sort of this catch-all for everything else that didn't quite fit in. Although I it's just in the Harvard bookstore, and I found that there are still categories like that. Uh, anyway, and there weren't actually a whole lot of books on every <laughs> Chinese religion. Um, but anyways, I think this was actually reflected the situation in Western universities back in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, okay. Um, Few universities offered courses on Chinese religion, and one got the impression that China was sort of unique for not have for, for religion not playing an important role in the country's history. I mean, we learned about the Taiping or the Boxers, but these were sort of Consigned to the marginalia of Chinese history, um, religion was often shown to be sort of a, a dark, irrational force that ar- arose occasionally, smashed a dynasty, and then sort of sunk back into uh, the netherworld of, of uh, you know, meditation and monasteries. Um, there was one prominent political scientist who wrote in the 1970s quote, of the astounding fact of our time, a nation state with one fourth of the Earth's population with hardly a trace of religion as man has known it. So I began to revise my thinking when I returned to China in 1994. I was then a reporter uh, working for the Baltimore Sun and later for the Wall Street Journal. And China at that time was beset by uh, what was sort of popularly known as Qigong fever, uh, which was a quasi-spiritual movement. Um, of course, you probably are all familiar with Qigong, but it had, it, on, on one level, it was a physical practice, a form of physical cultivation that a lot of people did just for health benefits, but it had a spiritual and quasi-religious component as well. And many of its practitioners, or, or many of its, uh, of these Qigong Uh, grand masters these Dasher had moral codes that they wrote down and circulated among their members and so you could see that people were searching for greater I would say meaning in their life but it was very difficult because the official religions in China the five accepted religions which are Taoism Buddhism Islam and then in China for administrative purposes Christianity is split into two, Protestantism and and uh, Catholicism. These were these religions were very badly hampered by government policy. They couldn't proselytize, they had very limited space to operate, but the, the Qigong groups were organized as a kind of martial arts um, and they were able to spread through the parks and and essentially proselytize. And I, I also spent quite a bit of time working for a. a US. registered charity called the Taoist Restoration Society, um, which um, I was I th- it sounds like we were trying to restore Taoism you know to, to sort of become the national religion of China, but it was actually founded by a, a, a friend of mine, a businessman from the United States who wanted who was a practicing Taoist himself and wanted to help rebuild temples that were destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. And so, as a newspaper reporter, I traveled a lot around China and I became his scout. And so I would go and, and look at temples and report back to my friend Brock in, in Beijing and say, well, there's some really interesting temples there and the people seem really sincere. Why don't you go take a look and talk to them? And so I got to know a lot of, um, a lot of Chinese religious practitioners and I could see that there, the temples were expanding um, sometimes just as now uh, as tourism projects but also a lot of people were donating money. And this is, of course, one of the most interesting things if you go to a Chinese temple, is to go to see the stone tablets in the back, the stele, and to look at how much money is donated at the temples. And you can just see vast amounts that are, are, are given. And this was already starting in the 1990s. Um, and I got to know um, a nun at, at, an, at a monastery outside of Nanjing in Maoshan and through her began to really understand a lot more about Chinese religion and see that it, was, um, that it was really growing quite quickly. But I would say that into the new millennium, most of our images and, and, and interest in China was still primarily economic. Um, growth had pushed China forward. Um, hundreds of millions of people had lifted themselves out of poverty. And of course, this era of optimism, I think, culminated in the 2008 Olympics, which was this, you know, vast self-congratulatory display of national power. But I I think by then, if not earlier, China began to enter a different phase, which I would call an era of anxiety. Um, This is partly economic, that Chinese people have, had been at that point through 30 years of economic reforms and now we're moving on to 40 years of economic reforms which has been tremendously disruptive to people's lives. Um, people have had to cope with mass layoffs of urbanization that gets pushed at a breakneck um, pace, the end of, of traditional family structures through the single-child policy and really no unifying set of values or ideology in society, except maybe that, um, you know, to get rich is glorious or that economics are the primary primary good in society. And this isn't enough for any society to have such limited values. Um, And I would say, especially not in China, which for centuries has been defined by the idea that morality plays a central role in the political and social life of the country. Um, And I think that this, we've noticed, of course, if you pay any attention to Chinese media, this national discussion over uh, a lack of values, a feeling that China is not a caring society, that people don't help each other when they're in need, And people are, of course, shocked by the tainted food scandals, the uh, tainted milk powder that we've probably heard about where infant formula was tainted. And people felt they had a hard time, you know, they'd go abroad and they'd buy as much milk powder as possible to bring back home for their children. Um, This fed into this national malaise, that there is a lack of virtue, a lack of morality in society. I mean, not everybody sees it in moral terms. If you're a classic, say, political dissident, you might say China needs rule of law uh, that will end corruption, uh, that you would have a better system of laws and this would uh, prevent things like the milk scandal from happening. Um, If you're inside the government, like, say, Xi Jinping, you would say what we really need is crackdown on corruption. We need, uh, again, stronger uh, uh, measures against these problems. But I think most people view it more broadly, and they see that there is a lack of a moral compass in society. Um, I think people, if you think of it even more broadly than just the reform era, China has been through over a century of wrenching change, with the old system collapsing, various ideologies tried out in the Republican era, in the communist era, and nothing really taking hold very well. I think a lot of people are fed up with the the way their society is constructed. Um, There was somebody I talked to in my book who I thought put it really well. She said, we thought we were unhappy because we were poor, but now a lot of us aren't poor anymore and yet we're still unhappy. We realize there's something missing and that's a spiritual life. Um, You know, at times I felt this wasn't too different from our own societies, that we also say it's not what you know, but who you know. There are old boys networks that hold back uh, deserving people. Um, And yet the longer I spent in China, the more I thought that this was, if not unique to China, this was extremely, um, extremely strong in Chinese society. Um, I think part of it is perhaps because there's a feeling that people have of a lack of mechanisms to change things. Um, And maybe this does get back to a political argument, but there's a a feeling sort of of helplessness that you can't really do anything except scream and shout on the internet. Like uh, most recently, you know, the United uh, Airlines case just a day or two ago when the passenger got dragged off the plane, it had almost more resonance in China than in the United States. I think the last I read there were 120 million views of that video inside China. And people were just going ballistic. We're gonna boycott United and da 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 da. You know, and of course this is not a bad idea to try to boycott United for the way they acted. But um, part of it I think is a sense of helplessness and that the only way to to to, to express yourself is to vent. Uh, so a lot of people are turning to um, to religious and spiritual organizations, or, yeah, movements and organizations. I think Xi Jinping, since taking over in 2012, has tapped into this very cleverly. His um, his phrase, the China dream, or as he said right after taking power in, in 2012 when he went to the museum on Tiananmen Square and called for the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Um, this was, of course, partly, you can again see this as purely a political uh, ploy or, or we can just look at the crackdown on corruption but a lot of it has been explicitly moral in, in Tenor he has visited Chu Fu spoken positively about Confucius he spoke very positively about Buddhism and Chinese society and Chinese history um, and under Xi support for traditional religions and traditional, broadly seen traditional culture has been very very strong didn't start with Xi Jinping, but um, programs like intangible cultural heritage, for example, have really taken off. And this is often a cover for essentially religious practice. These are things, of course. Intangible cultural heritage is this UNESCO term. Um, it's not meant to protect the Forbidden City or the Great Wall, but but practices. It could be something simply like cuisine or martial arts, but also rituals, music, etc. And what I found a lot in, in a lot of parts of China is that people now prefer to talk about culture, traditional culture. So I remember going to one temple, and there were people with incense and they're kowtowing in front of a statue, uh, you know, a, a goddess. And I said to this guy, "Well, this is a really vibrant religious life." I used the word religion, zong jiao. and the guy's like, "Oh, you know, it's like I said, a taboo word. He said, Don't say oh, it's not religion. This traditional Chinese culture." culture, And like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, they're not, this isn't religion, this is just culture. And of course, it's a lot easier. If you just make it culture, then you don't have to be approved by, you don't have to go through as many hoops by the government, you're just a, a cultural center, and you happen to have an old temple, and there's statues, and there are people who light incense, but it's not religion. If you're religion, then you have to be formally accredited by the State Administration of Religious Affairs. You have to become a religious practice center, um, like what they call it, a zongjiao hodong Changsu. And that's really complicated, and there's all kinds of people watching you, and you have to, you know, Uh, it's a lot of trouble. If you just call yourself a cultural center, it's no trouble at all. So, so many of these things, uh, for example, these uh, internal alchemy, these Taoist practices of Neidan that I participated in in the book um, and, and see, there were huge, these were huge activities with 500 people going on retreats in a big temple in Zhejiang province, but this was just considered a cultural event. And of course, it's a lot, easier. If you called it a religious event and you had 500 people going into a temple and and meditating in caves for 10 days then you're gonna get a lot more bureaucratic oversight. It's very difficult, probably impossible to organize something like that. Um, Yeah, and I just wanted to say, some people think that this is primarily esoteric and I I, I think it's I think I'll hopefully make, make a case that it isn't, but it's kind of funny also when we think of other parts of the world, how important religion are. I mean, if you were trying to understand the United States and you didn't know the history of the Puritans or the the faith of Martin Luther King Jr. or, or the role of the Southern Baptists, you would not be taken seriously if you were trying to understand American politics or culture. And I think it's the same really in China. So as I began to conceive of this book, I tried to find... I tried to, of course, China's huge, and you could write an encyclopedia, and this book is already fat enough at over 400 pages. I tried to find different groups of people that were representative. Um, one thing is, I mainly write about Han Chinese because I think uh, it's enough to write about 1.3 billion people, uh, and I just leave out the other 100 million people for another book that can be written. Um, and I also tried to give the book some geographic diversity, some diversity between city and countryside. So there are five strands in the book. One of them are pilgrims in Beijing. Another are rural Taoists uh, in Shanxi province. Another is a unregistered church in Chengdu, which is led by one of the most in my view, one of the most charismatic uh, pastors and probably famous pastors in China. Then there's also the internal alchemy practice, uh, which has a lot of people who are not in organized religion, but they're, they're following some kind of a, a master or somebody and, and, and getting something that they can do at home. I think this is how religion is practiced. A lot are spiritual practices. And the fifth player is the government especially under Xi Jinping, as they fashion this uh, embrace of traditional values and religions. Um, so that's sort of the introductory blah, 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 but I wanted to uh, then read from uh, the book to give you a sense of what it's like, because the book is not really constructed as, a, as an argument, but rather as a, as a narrative. Um, and I wanted to uh, read from the, the first Uh, Group that I mentioned these pilgrims in Beijing. There are about 80 pilgrimage uh, Associations in Beijing these are made up of anywhere from 20 to 50 people mostly working-class who whose Life really centers around the pilgrimage to Miao Feng Shan outside of Beijing This is uh, an important historic pilgrimage site. It's been written about extensively Um, Even the New York Times picked up on it in 1938 when the correspondent noted all these people who were going there and wrote that it was the Canterbury pilgrimage of Chaucer's Tales has a Chinese counterpart in the annual pilgrimage held this month up the slopes of Miao Shan, some 17 miles north of Beijing. Although they wrote Beijing at the time. Um, This pilgrimage has revived since the 1990s This is also a very interesting temple because it's not run by a religious organization. It's run by uh, actually a stock market listed company. Uh, So one of these uh, paradoxes in China that the most vibrant, I would say, religious site in the capital is run by uh, a company whose shares are traded on the Shenzhen Stock Exchange. But this probably, as I said, makes it all the more vibrant because they aren't limited by all the Religious Affairs Bureau stuff um the the association that i am going to read about is um is run by a family the ni family uh the founder is ni jen who worked in the construction industry and his son ni jincheng who also worked in the construction industry and um jincheng's wife uh chen jinchang this is a family i got to know a lot i'm still friends with them uh and spent many many a, lo- a lot of time with them. Um, so let me just read to you a little bit about Mr. Ni, old Mr. Ni, the, f- the founder, and how he got in- involved in this. And I think it'll give you a bit of a flavor of the overall religious revival in China. Oh, and let me put on a prop that I have. Because I have to wear this jacket. Because the Ni family gave me this jacket. And uh, they always wear clothes like this on the pilgrimage. So I feel like... In order to appropriately read this, I have to wear this. I love the the pinstripes, the Chinese buttons, and they all smoke Da Qianmen cigarettes. So I'm going to put the Da Qianmen cigarettes up here. I know we're not allowed to smoke in the classroom, so I'll probably set off a fire alarm if I do that. Um, which is an old sort of Lao Hao, an old famous brand. The cigarettes so still only cost a dollar a pack. Um, not not making an advertisement for this. I don't get any money. Um, old mr Nee had a shaved head and thick dark eyebrows that seemed permanently arched upward in a sign of surprise and humility he loved to talk about catching crickets collecting gourds and raising dogs when i had visited him a few months earlier we had chatted for a couple of hours about everything from calligraphy to the construction industry where he had worked since his youth. He had told me that he had cancer, but he was certain that he would recover. Now, though, I could see that the illness had overwhelmed his body. His hands clutched the armrests, as if struggling to keep his body upright. His head was bowed and immobile. When I approached, he did not move. It took him a moment to open his eyes and gesture for me to take a seat next to him. Then he summoned his energy and issued a command. If you want to write a book, be accurate. You don't want to be spouting nonsense like people on television, filming this or that, and making all sorts of misleading statements about us. Don't lead people astray. Do you understand? I thought back to my visits to Miao Feng Shan state-run television often filmed the colorful festival and aired reports on how everything was well and good with traditional chinese culture it rarely showed people worshiping and avoided mentioning that this was primarily a religious event it usually seemed like a report on a new theme park i nodded i am not so strong anymore and i'm not sure i can explain everything if i lead you astray. You will write errors, and others will be misled. We'll get further and further from the truth. But I want you to mark this. All temples are not the same. Some are fake. When you're writing, you have to know the distinction. You have to know which pilgrim, which permit pilgrims, and which do not. Miao Feng Shan does allow them. It's why our tea association goes there. Jin Chang leaned over and whispered in my ear, reminding me how his family's tea association had been founded. It had been 1993, and old Mr. Ni nee had been ill with kidney cancer. Surgery was imminent. He vowed that if he lived, he would make a trip to Miao Shan to thank Our Lady of the Azure Clouds. She had always looked after the family, and he was sure she would help him now, Back home, Jin Chung had lit incense and prayed. The surgery had gone well, and old Mr. Ni nee had recovered. The next spring, he went to Miao Feng Shan to fulfill his vow. Although the family had lived next to a temple to Our Lady of the Azure Clouds, they had never made the pilgrimage to her mountain. Old Mr. Ni nee had been just eight years old when the Japanese had invaded, and twenty when the communists took power. In such tumultuous times, the flow of pilgrims had slowed to a trickle, with people worried about safety and generally too poor to afford the long trip through the mountain roads. After Mao took power, his zealots destroyed the temple. But by the mid-1990s, it had been rebuilt and the pilgrimage had resumed. On his way down the mountain, old Mr. Ni told Jin Chang that he had an idea he wanted to set up his own pilgrimage association to offer pilgrims tea. In a literal sense, pilgrimage associations are superfluous. Nowadays, a pilgrimage usually just takes a day, and no one needs free tea or food. But the associations survive because the idea behind them is more important than their function. They symbolize piety, a gathering of people who have enough faith to sacrifice the thousands of dollars and weeks of time that it takes to run the pilgrimage association Jin Cheng had paused uh, <clears throat> Chang had paused for a minute to think this venture would cost a huge amount of money they would need a shrine with a beautiful statue and an altar in front of it they would need to set out expensive porcelain teapots and cups to symbolize their offering. Of course, they would also need lots of tea, and not cheap tea, but something that would honor the goddess. And then they would need volunteers to staff their stall so pilgrims could get tea any time of the day. It would cost tens of thousands of yuan, which especially back then was a lot of money for working class people. But Jin Chang was in private enterprise then and had begun to make money in the construction industry. He also knew that he could count on family and friends to help out he looked at his father and nodded. During the 1995 pilgrimage, with their own savings and donation from friends and colleagues, they began offering tea and steamed buns at Miao Feng Shan. Now I looked over at old Mr. Ni and nodded. I knew the story and I knew it was because of Miao Feng Shan that he had established the Tea Association. You were healed 20 years ago. Perhaps it can happen again. I ventured. He shook his head. This wasn't a time for empty talk. He was dying and wanted to get across something important. His voice, which even last summer had been so strong and clear, was now hoarse. He struggled to gather the air in his lungs. You have to decide if you're writing about practices to make money or if you're writing about belief. He stared down at the floor and took a deep breath, and brought up something no one liked to talk about, the Cultural Revolution, a decade of chaos and attacks on religion. Temples like those on Miaofengshan Shan had been razed, while priests, monks, and nuns had been humiliated and dispersed. When the chaos ended with Mao's death in 1976, religious life had slowly resumed. After the ten years of calamity, he said, the government didn't approve rebuilding Shan, but it didn't oppose it. There was no document saying it was appro- approved. You see what I mean? It was done by ordinary people. Folk. This word, he said, pausing to let the word minjian hang in the air for a few extra seconds. It means it doesn't matter who you are. You can be a farmer. It doesn't matter. But now, I said, That first generation that reopened the temples is getting old. Will its children carry on this work in the future? Humans, he's trailed off, trying to find the right way to put it. There's no end to doing good deeds. There's no final point. You're a Westerner. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, or Protestant, or any religion. If you've been doing something for 30 years, you don't quit. You don't fold. Impossible. Mark this with fate, faith. If you've gone half the road, you'll go the distance. The next step, your sons and daughters will take up the things you left behind. It's the same with Christianity, or any religion, Jin Cheng added. You get what I mean? It's the same principle. There's nothing mysterious about it. Of course, we all have our own cultures. Chinese literature or other parts of culture, well, it's pretty big, if you're going to eat and drink culture, that's not easy. That's a complicated topic. But faith is different. The basic point is simple. It's only the specifics that are different. The old man wheezed and pushed hard on his hands to keep himself upright. Jin Cheng's wife, Chan Jin Shang, walked in and put her arms around his shoulders to steady him. Dad, take a rest, Jin Sheng said quietly. The old man shook his head. Talking to me is just wasting your time if you want to know about high culture. He laughed and perked up. I don't like to talk nonsense. If I know something, I'll tell you. If not, I won't. Ask. I want to know why you still run the Tea Association, I said. You wanted to thank Our Lady of the Azure Clouds to pay her back for saving your life. He nodded and I continued. But why do you still go year after year? Haven't you paid her back already? There is a need, he said. People are unsettled. They come to the mountain, so we should be there for them. We are carrying this on to the next generation. I feel it is our duty. He paused to formulate the words. There is another reason. The temple on Miao Feng Shan, its history, is like a great story. Many famous people went there. Do you know Chung Yan Cho? He's one of the four big names in the history of Peking Opera. He was fantastic. He gave an incense burner. It's well known. It's part of the story. Those are famous people. But you, what have you left behind? He said, addressing himself. Who's going to remember you? What have you left to value? Then he answered his own question. Unless it's participating in the Pilgrimage Association? Our tea association has a name that's unique. It's the Whole Heart Philanthropic Salvation Tea Association. It's based on charity. What are you going to leave behind? He said again. And then he replied in a different, deeper voice. Well, you've got your tea association. Ah, right. In the Beijing district of Fengtai, in the temple of the Tolling Bell neighborhood, is the Whole Heart Philanthropic Salvation Tea Association. Ah, right. So you can leave that. I, Ni Jun Shan, I can leave that. Otherwise, who will remember you? Xin Chang looked down at the ground. His father was already talking about the time after his passing. He was upset. Who would run the pilgrimage association if his father died dad what are you talking about what nonsense Jin Sheng's wife blurted out chen Shang was a lively woman of 56 with short permed hair and a great peeling laugh but her father-in-law's talk troubled her the old man was patient this was his daughter-in-law a member of his family for over 30 years how to make her understand. Then he thought of the family Steely, a stone tablet about four feet high that stood outside the temple, an honor given to his tea association for its service to pilgrims. Chiseled on the front was the association's name. On the back were the names of the founding family members, including hers. He looked at her softly. Think of it like this. Long in the future, even if times change, our Steely will remain at the temple. They'll see your name, and they'll say, Hey, who is that Chun Jin-shan? Then they'll know, Oh, that's one of the founders of the Tea Association. If you don't have something like this, you won't make it into history as a personage. But Dad, after a while, Steelys fall down, Miss Chun said. They break. Yes, you can think of it like that, but heaven knows what you have done. And if your grandson goes to Miao Shan and carries on the tea association, if he sees that the stele is broken, he'll fix it or put up a new one, copy the names from the old one and re-erect it. His children will know that their great-grandmother was called Chan Jin Shan, and she was a pilgrim to Miao Shan and arrested a stele here, and so they'll take care of it. This is what's known as passing down for 10,000 years, or, through the ages of a thousand autumns. Dad wanted to write a book about the family, Ms. Chun said to me. I'm afraid I don't have much to offer, old Mr. Chun said. I don't have that much higher education. I'm afraid that I'll tell you a lot of nonsense and your book will be full of errors. A book like yours, his son said, nodding sagely, could be boundless. What aspect of the pilgrimage associations do you want to understand? The old man said, you need direction, his son added. What are you writing? Ms. Chun said with a big laugh, and we all joined in. I want to describe this rebirth of faith, I said to them. It seemed to start recovering after the Cultural Revolution, but really took off in recent years. That's my case, old Mr. Nee said. I encountered an illness and wanted to express my faith. For the first time in our lives, we had money. So I decided to donate tea. It was a thought harbored in my breast, but never spoken. I just went to the mountain and saw something was missing and the next year helped out a bit. I just wanted to see what could be done. We offered green tea. In my dad's day, green tea was really expensive. And so we offered it, Jin Chung said. That's why. But our principles are different from some of the other groups that you might see. We follow the Buddhist idea of dana, the practice of giving or charity. A lot of this new stuff is just for making money, Jincheng added. It's rubbish. Then his father surprised me by disagreeing. No, he said, shaking his head firmly, his eyebrows knit together tightly, as if pondering the idea and then rejecting it. Not all new things are bad. Sometimes new things rise up and they stay. After a while, they become old. Then they become traditional.